The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This is going to be a real thinker. Oh, man. I can it's just... A- Thinker. I can I can feel the coffee slowly fueling our brains. <laughs> Give me strength, bean juice. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome to Backstage Gaming, dramatic takes on your favorite games. I'm Chris. And I'm Dylan. And welcome to our first ever morning record. It's a very uh, special AM episode yeah, of the we're, podcast. Uh, <laughs> we are both of us nursing cups of coffee and figuring out exactly how to use a brain in the morning because this is when we could record this week. But here we are. Uh, we've got we did a, it for you. We did it. We, I did this for you. <laughs> We've got a, a topic that I've actually had on the docket wanting to talk about since we started the show, but I just didn't, you know, we always had, like, more exciting things at the moment. We were like, yo, let's talk about this. Yeah, yeah. We're going to be talking about failure as a narrative tool and how games do and don't use it, because failure is necessary for good stories. There is a pejorative term for characters in stories who never fail, and you might know it as either Mary Sue or Gary Stu, like... Failure is necessary for a story to feel good, and yet games, being things that people want to play to win, don't <laughs> typically build failure in, uh, in the same way that, say, a film or a TV series or a novel might for their main character. So we're going to kind of dive into that topic. Um, yeah. Before that, I have discovered recently that I am apparently... I don't consider myself to like have a type as far as people that I am attracted to. But I have discovered. Oh my recently... god! Are we talking about this? <laughs> I think it's funny. Okay. <laughs> we don't have to if you don't. No, it's fine. I'm fine with it. I just I thought we weren't going to. I have discovered recently that I apparently am a type for the people that shop at the store that I work at, specifically almost exclusively black ladies who are old enough to be my mom. I've just been getting a lot of up-downs and a lot of eyeballs, and yesterday <laughs> a lady that I was, as I was handing her her bag of groceries, I heard her under her breath just go, so strong. <laughs> and I don't know what to do with this. Like, <laughs> well, <laughs> like Dylan, help me. <laughs> How? I don't know, but I trust you. Um, I brought this to your desk because I thought you could help. Let's see. Uh, I have a funny anecdote about how my jade eyes saved me. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you must share. I was driving to a convention. Uh, I was meeting my friends there. And, you know, it being an hour-long drive, I stopped for gas. And as I paid for the gas, the the lady working at behind the counter was like, you have very pretty eyes. And I was like... Ah, thanks, because I, I love compliments. I'm a, yeah. I'm a sucker for them. I, I get back in my car, and I'm like, she said I have nice eyes. And then I'm like, I'm thinking about my eyes now. And then I'm thinking about the fact that I'm wearing contact lenses. And then I'm <laughs> thinking about the fact that I forgot to bring my contact lens solution. Oh, no! So if I didn't go back home right then and there, I would have a very miserable weekend. <laughs> and that, that gas station attendant, Sarah Mich- Wait, I was going to say Sarah McLaughlin, and then it came out Sarah Michelle Sarah Geller. Michelle. so oh, well, I don't know, is. I don't know what we're doing anymore. I mean, like, I like compliments, too, but I don't know what to do with it when they're things like... No, I understand that. So do that. you do a lot of mm, upper body exercises? Which is another thing that a woman said to me in that tone of voice. <laughs> oh, no. And I... You should hand them some Gatorade so they can punch that thirst. (laughs) You know, we've got a whole cooler full of drinks right around the corner from the cash (laughs) registers if you're feeling thirsty. (laughs) Oh, like, I don't know. I'm working out because I want to look pretty, but I didn't know it would have this consequence. (laughs) Not all these middle-aged black women. No, this isn't what I wanted at all. I've been sent to the Shadow Realm. Um, (laughs) enough about this. Uh, (laughs) let's dive in. 
I feel like it's important to note that it's not specifically the fact that they're black women. No, no, not at all. (laughs) It's that they're old enough to be my mother, and some of them old enough to be my youngish grandmother. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to talk about... Speaking of which, we're going to talk about failure (laughs) this week. (laughs) Um, Excuse me. (laughs) My own failure as a person is what I I want to clarify. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Oh, wait, before we get to that... okay. um, Important to follow up to last week's episode. Oh, yes, please. Um, Kingdom Hearts 3 came out. I started playing it. That game does drop you right into the heat of the action. Unlike Kingdom Hearts 1 and Kingdom Hearts 2, there really isn't any rising action before you start exploring. It's just kind of like you, you press start, there's like a couple cutscenes. You get the FMV with Utada Hikaru music playing, and then, boom, you are in the game. And so, at first I was like... Oh shit, maybe a full seven games of build-up was necessary. Man, romance me a little bit first, Nomura. <laughs> but like, you know, as as you kind of keep playing, like I figured it would, because the main character is privy to a surprisingly sparse amount of information that the player would be privy to, you do get filled in on quite a bit. Okay. That's good. Yeah, That's also... but it's, it's kind of like as you play the game, you, you kind of start to pick up more things. Like, you'll never understand everything, but, like, <laughs> you'll get all the basic points you need to to get the general gist of the story. Okay. Whether or not That's you good. like that story is up to you because Kingdom Hearts is weird, but, like, yeah. if it's your thing, you'll coast. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with beginning a story in Media's Rest. There's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with, like launching into the action as long as there's a little bit of context given as you go so that you make you can make sense of it. It has um, a very God of War 3 cold open, if really? that makes sense. Like, not he's quite. So, Sora cutting down a tree to uh, add to the funeral pyre of his dead wife with his keyblade? I don't... God of War 3. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Where, like, it, it kind of starts... For me, all God of War is now God of War 2018 because that game is a masterpiece. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't quite start in the middle of an action set piece, but, like... Literally, you're like, go here, and then you go there, and it's the middle of a huge action set piece. <laughs> that, that was kind of, you know, in case anyone didn't listen to last week's episode, we were talking about the Kingdom Hearts games and their sort of, shall we say, bulbous accumulation of lore that has occurred over the past decade? Yeah. Holy cow, when did... We're old. Um, we, we are old. <laughs> yeah, we, we that's what we talked about last episode, so that's Dylan coming in with the... Uh, the clutch insider info now that the game that we were talking about has actually launched. Um, yeah. Like, again, if... It, it, the, like, the story drops you in, but, like, you know, hopefully if you play it, you will have an interest. If, you've, if you're playing it and you've never played any other Kingdom Hearts game before, hopefully you will have an interest to go back and see the rest of the story. This year we're going to be talking about failure in narratives and in games and how games... This whole year? You know what? <laughs> I thought you loved me. Um, well, you know what? If we're going to be talking about failure, we should talk about that line flub you just... Yeah, that's... You know what? We're we're living in it. Uh, <laughs> this week, this episode of the podcast that we produce together professionally, uh, we're going to be talking about failure, like me, um, <laughs> oh, no. and diving into like what failure is useful for narratively and how games use it and more typically how games kind of fail to use it to its full potential which i hope will kind of make sense as we get into this i want you to just imagine take you know take a take a walk into the dreamscape with me listeners and just see if you can think of any piece of media narrative media i should say this won't show up in like non-concept albums i guess but any piece of like any story that you like whether it's film or tv or theater or game comic book, whatever it might be, and see if you can think of an example of a story that works well in which the main character never fucks up. Because I really can't. I'm thinking. Arguably, and I'm not the biggest comic book fan, so I'm I'm worrying about putting this out there. Arguably Superman. Superman's fucked up before. <laughs> but that's the thing. All of like the Superman stories that I know of and that I like revolve around him making mistakes. Oh, okay. I, so I see like, where you're going. like there are. I'm sure there are comics of Superman where like Superman is completely infallible, but like those aren't the ones that I remember. You know? Yeah. Any example you can pull to, like Dark Knight, 
the Joker comes about because of Batman, and the Joker is able to get so much of like the shit he gets done done because Batman fucks up or Harvey Dent fucks up, and Harvey Dent ends up messed up because of a fuck up that Batman makes. Like it's all good stories and good problems are based in, or at least are compounded by mistakes that people make while trying to solve them if that makes any kind of sense Mm. in order for a story to have a satisfying conclusion it can't just be like oh wow that was a walk in the park he really solved that problem with no difficulties whatsoever um that would be boring you need to have the moments of like mistakes being made or the hero not getting the villain or the villain beating the hero or like whatever it is to give that emotional weight to like oh he finally did it oh they finally won oh she finally cracked the case whatever it might be this runs into problems because games are based on player input player action and video games kind of came to being largely in arcades right yeah and if you lose in an arcade you lose money arcade games were not Typically, I, I'm not going to lay out blanket statements, but typically we're less story-focused. But even then, you know, you're playing to win. Arcade yeah. games were all about playing to win, playing to get a high score, playing to last as long as you possibly could, whatever it I might have be. to get the girl at the end. Exactly. I have Maybe to get she'll my, give me a smooch. I have to get my name to the, high, the highest point on the leaderboard, whatever it might be. Yeah. And because that's where video games came to be that is also where a lot of, like, the mentality of how people put games together for a long time crystallized. This has become far less true as time has gone on, but, like, at their core, game design, if you trace it back far enough, all stems kind of from the video arcade mentality. Mm -hmm. And in that, there's no such thing as a, like, satisfying failure. Right. (laughs) Because, like, you're out a quarter, or you're out 50 cents, or you're out a token at Chuck E. Cheese, or whatever it is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the emergent narrative of Frogger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My children are waiting just over this next road. Um, <laughs> but that is sort of where the idea of like how games engage players came from. And then as games started to care more about storytelling and care more about you know putting together a narrative that people can follow and that people can enjoy and that can be satisfying to experience, they weren't really able to shake that mentality of like but we don't want the player to fail that's not to say that characters can't fail i can think of a lot of a lot of games were like gonna just reach into the ether and pluck one that i can be vague about like halo you're running you're gunning you're doing your thing you're fighting the aliens you're you master chief's a cool guy uh and you get to the end of the level and then cortana pops in and is like Oh no, while we were doing this, we, we, we fell for their bait, we fell for their distraction, now they're sacking the city on the other side of the ring, or whatever. Same thing with, uh, the, I just thought of Ocarina of Time just yeah. now. Jump in. Where, like, you're doing everything you're supposed to do, and then you hit a point in the story where you do what you're supposed to do, and that's bad, and that yeah. changes the next half of the story. Yeah, and, like, not to say that any of this is necessarily bad, because you're building a narrative, you're building these moments of failure in, but you as the player have never failed. You as the player have been doing everything you need to do. You as the player have been, you know, completing all of your all of the objectives that have been set before you and doing what you need to do, and, like, maybe you got a game over in there somewhere, but, like, game overs Even are not... Even if you fail, that is a fail state, it does not change how you need to play. Yeah, if you fail, it's a game over, which is the game going, oh, you fucked up, don't worry, we'll rewind for you a little bit. Um, I don't know why the game is, like, kind of a sassy Brooklynite, um, but uh, maybe that's the maybe that's what it sounds like when Link plays his ocarina. <laughs> <laughs> Left, down, up, hey, what you doing? Um, why? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Oh, it's, it's a good morning, happy yeah. morning podcast, everyone. <laughs> well... Welcome to the Backstage Gaming Morning Hour. Uh, (laughs) But, like, that is what the player's failure states are, and they have no bearing on the narrative failure state. When you get to those points where it's like, oh, no, while you were doing this thing that you were told to do and that you had to do to progress the plot, bad things happened. And, like, you're still getting that moment of, like, the tension of, like, oh, no, we were wrong, bad things are progressing, the story has gotten darker. But games are interactive, and there's so much potential for failure to feel like the player's fault but also surmountable if that makes sense mm. 
to dive in to get you know granular and actually provide an example and stop kind of talking around it one of my favorite games that has a really cool way of engaging with failure are well, two games now the modern reincarnations of the XCOM games uh, mm. XCOM was an old tactical game in like the 90s about defending the earth from extraterrestrial invasion and then it got rebooted as a 3D top down tactical like move your pieces around on the board shoot the aliens defend the earth game called XCOM Enemy Unknown and then a few years later they put out a sequel XCOM 2 and what I love about these games I have played I've put so many hours into the first XCOM and a fair number into the second as well I can attest uh, to this they are built around missions and they're all built around like kind of having to make hard choices you as the player are taking on the role as the commander of this military organization trying to fight off this alien invasion and so as you're directing research and expanding your base you'll suddenly get a distress call and there will be two or three simultaneous alien attacks and you have to pick the one that will cause the least harm because each each attack like increases the panic level in the area that it is that is being attacked unless you go to it and stop it but you can only go to one of the two or three. So right there, you're immediately building in, like, hard choices and tension and the, poten the potential for, like, real bad things to happen if you're not really on top of your stuff. And then when you're on the ground, you'll have objectives like maybe you have to kill all the aliens, maybe you have to hack into an alien terminal, maybe you have to rescue an important person who's, being, who's attempting to be abducted. But the great thing is, if you fail the mission, that's not game over. If you send in, like, a team of four soldiers and three of them die and you have to evac the last one without succeeding, that mission is still complete. You just fucked it up and you have to deal with the consequences moving forward. And I wish more games were able to engage with this because, like, I... So I actually have a question. Yeah, hit me. Um, In, in one of your many playthroughs yes. of XCOM, were you able to get yourself out of the hole when your best teammates bit it yes okay. it was fucking hard <laughs> okay uh because i'm a glutton for punishment i refuse to play games like xcom not on uh in xcom they refer to it as iron man mode which is where the game automatically saves after every decision you make so you can't go back and save scum mm. and it can be backbreaking to like lose your crack squad okay like, so that's that where um, in the Fire Emblem community, a lot of people called them Iron Man runs, and I was always wondering where that came from, and now I yeah, realize, that's... oh, it's from XCOM. Yeah, I mean, it might be from something before that, I just know that that is what it is referred to in the game menu of XCOM. I don't know if it's the first game to use that. It can be game over to lose your best squad. Like, if you if you send in, like, your, your six most elite arm, uh, units, and you just, like, make a bad decision and end up losing all of them... That can be the end of the line, but it isn't automatically, and you have the option, and you have the opportunity to continue that game and see if you can dig yourself out of that hole. And, like, I've played a lot of XCOM. I don't really remember, beyond, like, very surface-level details, what the actual, like, in-game narrative plot of XCOM is beyond like aliens invade and you have to stop them, you know? I was about to say, like, that is the extent of my knowledge. Yeah. What I remember are the moments of, like, my squad got flanked, two of them got killed outright, one of them got taken to, like, 1 HP, and my sniper just, like, laid down covering fire while that guy slowly dragged himself to the evac zone so I didn't lose everything. Wow. <laughs> yeah, like, it builds these moments of, like, because you know the failure is real, the tension is so much higher. Because you know the failure has consequences, you care a lot more... And it leads to these, like, really impressive moments of, Dylan, you, you used this term earlier, emergent narrative, which is a, a really yeah. good term for this kind of, like, the story that comes out of games from you playing them, not just from what the writers put in there. Yeah, like, the fact that, like, the highest point of tension in a game is not a set piece that the designers made for you, but something crazy that happens that ramps up the stakes because of the way the mechanics all come together. Yeah, there was another run I played where, like, there was one soldier who made it from the first game, like, the first intro level all the way to the end game. And then he 
ended up eating it in that last level. And, like, that hurt more. Like, that, you know, randomly named, randomly generated pawn in this game dying at that moment genuinely, like, caused me more pain <laughs> than... <laughs> It was almost on par of, like, Dobby dying in Harry Potter. <laughs> like, it was a similar amount of, like, oh, man, Chief. Oh, man, I feel that. I feel that. And, like, I think that that is fascinating, and I wish that... Part of that is just the the formula that the XCOM game has, of, like, you go out, you do missions, you come back to base, you deal with the consequences of the missions you didn't take just as much as you handle the rewards for the missions you did take. And it's all about mm. managing different failure options across the board. But I feel like there's potential for this kind of, like, giving your mistakes and giving your choices as a player more narrative heft in a negative way in more games. Which brings me neatly to a segue to a game that I was hoping Dylan would be able to talk about a little bit. Ah, uh, yes. Jump uh, in! Uh, so last week we were talking about Resident Evil 2. Not last week, two weeks ago we were talking about Resident Evil 2 and loss aversion. Mm -hmm. And so... Sorry, uh, I was just kind of having a flashback because <laughs> Res Resident Evil 2, the, the remake, is a very scary game that uh, puts you in a lot of very precarious situations. So the really cool thing about Resident Evil 2 is that like, um, I recently beat my first run of it, and it's, it's like a very scary game, guys. Uh, zombies do not fall. Like, they take a lot of resources. It, it takes a lot of resources to down even one of them. Ooh. And, um, like, about a third of the way into the game, you have your first, like, real boss fight, and it just ate up all of my resources. So I went from, like, having, like, a comfortable amount of ammo in, for every weapon I had to, like, oh, I have seven bullets in my handgun and two shotgun shells. And that forced me to completely rethink the way I'd been playing. The way I'd been playing, I was able to comfortably, like, take out any zombies I think would get in my way in repeated encounters. Because, uh, for people who don't know or don't remember, uh, in Resident Evil, there's a finite number of zombies. Once a zombie is dead, they are gone for good. But there's but, always the risk of losing all your ammo. Yep, and to balance that out, there's a finite amount of bullets yes. that you can find. <laughs> Incredibly finite. And so... Every time I remember that, I think that's the fucking coolest thing. It's so good. The hardcore mode also brings back limited number of saves, so... Oh, no! I haven't done that yet. I haven't done that yet, but I've heard it's, like, really hard. <laughs> yeah, so, like, I'm going through these different levels that I won't spoil for people who've never played Resident Evil 2 before, and I have to take out these, like, terrible mutant creatures with, like, you know, my five handgun bullets. <laughs> And that completely changed the way I played, so much so to the point where when I started a new run, just I, I became so efficient at conserving my ammo that, like, you know, it, it's it's still difficult because, like, ammo still needs to be conserved and, like, enemies are still bullet sponges. But at the same time, I I had way more ammo than I ever did in my first run through. But it, it's just kind of like you're really forced to kind of take a pause and, like, really try to understand how each enemy works like what not their mentality is but like what their behavior is because they're zombies so it, it's it's really hard for me to explain right now but uh and you just you really have to think about every single enemy you encounter can i afford to waste these three shots i have left what if there's another boss coming out uh will they give me the ammo i need imagine the failure state of being on like your last clip Dude, that's that was Resident Evil 2 for me. <laughs> that's such a and like again, it's it's different cuz it's not like, oh, you've like lost, but like you can make mistakes that have ongoing consequences that add to the tension and add to the sort of narrative stakes of your yeah. specific playthrough there. And that's a really like all that is is them coming up with a system they wanted to implement and putting it in there. And that's really rad. <laughs> Question for you. Yes. If you run straight out of bullets, mm -hmm. can you win the game? Oh, let me think. Like, is there a way to yes. succeed? But yeah. Okay, so yes, but you might have to tank some hits. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> like This is the shit I want more of in games. <laughs> this is the shit that, like, I love games that provide you with, like, 
variable tension and the fact that your like your actions have consequences is a blurb that has been showing up on the back of game boxes for a decade. Yeah. Um and what that typically means is something like the Mass Effect games which were famous for like giving you choices that then like those choices would come back later on in the story. Yeah. And that's cool and I like the Mass Effect games a lot but like that is a very written sensationalist. In. Yeah, it's okay. a, it's a very scripted form yeah. of this kind of actions have consequences which again not a bad thing you can't really build in infinite variability in things like the story of a game especially one with as much text and voice acting as the mass effect series not until Um, we develop perfect ai and well then we have more problems than not having engaging enough failure narratives in our i feel like there's a lot of moral launches there but like that is what is typically referred to when a game will brag about like Look at all of the consequences of your actions. When what I'm looking for is like, no, give me those consequences in your mechanical systems. Give yeah. me just enough wiggle room in the mechanics that you've built that I can dig myself into a hole that I have to dig myself out of. Yeah. Because that's the gameplay experience that I'm going to remember more fondly. Um, so I think that actually segues pretty nicely into uh, Metal Gear Solid 3. Jump on it! Yeah, so in Metal Gear Solid 3, there is... It, Metal Gear Solid 3 is a stealth game where you play as an, an American espionage agent in the 60s. And so you are infiltrating a fictional jungle in a real-life region in Russia. It's wild. Basically, uh, a whole a large emphasis in the Metal Gear games is on sneaking past your enemies rather than killing them. That's That's emphasized in the story, but I don't think it's ever really properly been emphasized in the gameplay yeah it's it's there in like the way that the game is themed and the way the game is presented yeah metal gear the tagline for the series is tactical espionage action yes and like the way that the games always frame themselves are very like all right we're dropping you in you're outnumbered figure out your way in you've got to figure out what you're going to use while you're there weapon weapon and equipment uh osp Yep. But then, I think you're right, I don't think it's ever like, do it sneaky. <laughs> yeah, like, that is what's encouraged, and that is also, if you play the games, especially the games on PS1 and PS2, that is the more efficient way, because the combat is intentionally kind of clunky. But, you know, you are in your full right to just shoot a dude uh, with a silenced pistol, and... In Metal Gear Solid 3, if you play that way, because there are a lot of different ways to kill enemies, if you play that way, there are consequences. There is a very um, notable boss fight at the, I want to say at the end of the second act, but like, it's been a while, where you are kind of, Snake falls unconscious, and Snake is the name of the main character, I don't know if I ever established that. Uh, Your Snake falls unconscious. (laughs) He falls unconscious, and he's kind of transported to this weird dreamscape where you fight a boss fight who's this specter from the afterlife called the sorrow and he basically he doesn't fight you all you have to do is get to the end of this long tunnel i can't remember exactly like if there is a fail state in this segment but what's important is that you need to get to the end but there there are obstacles that impede your movement and these obstacles are the souls of every single enemy you've killed in the game. Which is so cool. And the game remembers how you killed them. So if you snap their neck, they will complain about how their neck hurts, and, like, their heads will... They will walk in an unnatural manner so as to emphasize that. Or, you know, maybe one of them drowns. Like, there will be a detail to reflect that. And so this is... It's not really a failure of you as a player in that, like, yes, you have successfully gotten past these guards. It is a failure of you as a, not a pacifist, but a spy. Yeah, you... You are leaving a trail, and... You are supposed to be sneaky and stealthy and, you know, leave no trace, and you have left a trace. Yeah, and more than that, there's a huge emphasis in the Metal Gear... Again, there is a huge emphasis in the Metal Gear Solid games about... I don't want to say war is bad because that's a very reductionist way to phrase it, but, like, more so that, like, war is not supposed to be fun, or rather, like, killing, specifically, is not supposed to be fun. 
you're supposed to creatively find ways around killing people in Metal Gear Solid. That is what the game rewards. That is what the game praises the player for. To have, like, Metal Gear Solid 3 is the first game where actually killing the guards has a hard consequence. Yeah, and it's really cool. I love that set piece so much. I just wanted to to tag on there that, like, I'm weird and I care too much and I roleplay even in non-roleplaying games. Um, mm-hmm. But I get the same feeling whenever I'm playing something like uh, the Thief series or Dishonored. Dishonored we've talked about before on the podcast. It's a sort of stealth action game where you sneak around or charge in guns blazing and try to, you know, figure your way through these levels. It is sort of a spiritual successor and a lot of the same people worked on it that worked on a early series of PC games called Thief. Uh, There was Thief, Thief Thief the Dark Project, Thief 2, The Metal Age... I don't remember what Thief 3 was called because Thief 3 isn't very good. And then they put out a reboot. Thief 3 Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, and then they put out a reboot that was uh, initially titled Thiforf that is also not very good. But Thief 1 and 2 are two of my favorite games of all time. And it's right there in the title. You are a thief. All of the mechanics of the game are built around moving quietly, knowing how, being able to tell how quiet you are and how visible you are and using that and a bunch of tools at your disposal to get through the levels. Uh, Going to and, see the bears tomorrow. Yep. Oh my, it also features some of the best bad early game voiceover. Going to the bear pitch tomorrow. It's going to be a real <laughs> eye gouging. It's so <laughs> bad. I love it so much. But I fall into this thing whenever I'm playing a game like that where it's like, I cannot be seen. I must be the knight. And like, (laughs) depending on how I'm feeling, sometimes I'll get to the point where it's like, if I'm seen, I'm like, well, fuck, starting this level over. But you don't have to. There's like, and Dishonored does this very well, where at the end of every level in Dishonored, you get a rating of like how sneaky you were versus how violent you were. You can get bonuses for being like never seen or for never killing anyone, or you can get bonuses on the other end of the spectrum for, like, killing absolutely everybody. But they sort of build into the play experience, like, little mini-goals for you that can add to, like, not necessarily big overarching dramatic tension like we've been talking about so far, but at least, like, moment-to-moment additions of, like, oh, crud, am I out of sight enough? Is he gonna see me? Am I gonna have to get my sword out? Oh, I really don't want to get my sword out. Oh, I just cleaned my sword. I don't want blood on my sword. Oh, no. And I just really enjoy that, and I th- I like games that build in... I guess one way to, to add this to, ga- to more games would be to add multiple engagement styles, kind of like with Metal Gear yeah. Solid and with uh, the Dishonored series of, like, you can play it multiple ways. One is easier, but the easier way might have story ramifications or difficulty ramifications later or things like that. I think that that might be an interesting thing to see in more games as they, as you, I you take like to a... the skies and make this the requirement of game studios. <laughs> you mean you mean like an adaptive difficulty system? Not even necessarily adaptive difficulty, but like okay, there are there are kind of building on like in in Metal Gear Solid Three, there are points where it's like it would be easier to just stand up and gun these people down, mm-hmm. but then that leads to more difficulty in this later moment, right? That kind of thing, like consequences of your actions coming back to haunt you in ways that are more mechanical and maybe more difficulty oriented or something like that rather than being uh right okay and now the rakshi queen is here to fight you again commander <laughs> shepherd um the rakshi queen like it's not bionicle that's that's what came out of my mouth it's not it's something like that but it's not rakshi <laughs> i thought they were called the reapers oh no there's a there's a the reapers the reapers are the are the are the big bads there is an alien race in uh that you Got it. I don't know if you have to, but I think you do uh, deal with in an early story mission in Mass Effect 1 that's like something like, it sounds like Rakshi, and now that's all I can think of because it's what came out of my mouth. Uh, (laughs) Okay. And you have the option to either kill or release the queen. Okay. And if you release her, then there is the potential for her to come back in like Mass Effect 3 or something like that to help Mm -hmm. you out. Anyway. So this is going to be a weird one. So stick with me, folks. So I am one of three people. Yeah, I am one of three people out there that have played. I, I am. I am Dylan one. Dylan two and three are on break right now. <laughs> uh, we are Craig. Dylan one is the morning shift. Dylan, that's why he can't <laughs> talk for shit. 
<laughs> um, but yeah, no. So uh, I am one of three people. I know only one other person who's even played this game. Um, so stick with me, audience. But uh, I love Valkyrie Profile. Mm-hmm. It is one of my favorite RPGs on the PS1. And so now I will explain what Valkyrie Profile is, because I've only really mentioned it in passing to you, Chris. Fuck me up. Uh, so this will be a conversation. Yeah. Um, okay, so Valkyrie Profile, in like a very quick summary, is loosely based on Norse mythology, but still, cl- like, it's still more in touch with Norse mythology than like many other JRPGs mm-hmm. that borrow Norse mythology are. Um, and so like the the basic premise is that you play a Valkyrie, um, and you are gathering Einherjar, the souls of dead warriors, to fight for Odin in Valhalla in preparation for Ragnarok. So what this means in the game is that there are a set number of periods, and Odin's like, we need a warrior who's an archer with like these skills. And so um, the, the game is like, you get a vision, predict the fate of a warrior who's about to die, you see a cutscene that shows that warrior's backstory. The warrior joins your party, and then you go on to the next one, um, ad infinitum. And then also, like, you will be pointed in the direction of a dungeon where you can help train and level up these warriors. And then you customize them, and then you send them to Odin, and he will give you an evaluation <laughs> uh, based on, like, how close you were to his specifications. It's, it's build a beefcake workshop. <laughs> oh for real though Uh, (laughs) I wanted more abs on this boy yes how dare you say how dare you send me a suboptimally abdominal boy (laughs) to Niflheim with you you've been giving me nothing but maggoty scrubs for three stinking (laughs) days looks like meat's back on the menu boys (laughs) Um, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And now we're going to move forward with our lives. (laughs) Anywho. (laughs) You you do this, and uh, your main character, her her name is Leneth. Uh, She she really kind of approached this... She approaches this job with, like, the same indifference that you and I would approach a (laughs) minimum wage-paying job. Woo! She's just like, all right. So none. (laughs) Yep, time to do my nine-to-five. Also, like... I don't really care about humans. Um, I think one of my favorite bits of flavor text in the game is you get... There is a loot drop item called the Book of Eternal Life or whatever. And uh, the item description for it is... A book written by a foolish human who knows nothing. It is of (laughs) no value. (laughs) I love that. And that really just characterizes, like, the type of... The the, the type of character you're playing as. Essentially, if, if you basically play by Odin's rules for the entire game. You get a very bog-standard NES ending where it's like, good job, Lunith, you have defeated the evil in Valhalla 1, and then the credits roll, and it's very unsatisfying and very not good. (laughs) But, and I'm not sure how people found this out because it is very cryptic. It is incredibly cryptic. But you are actually supposed to do things that go against what Odin tells you to do. You you have to lower... There's this in-game value called the seal rating. And you have to do things like... When you approach Odin, you can't be wearing a certain piece of equipment that you're supposed to wear in his presence. When, when you find sacred treasures that are supposed to be given to him as tribute, you're supposed to keep some of them. There's a castle that you're... Like, there is a dungeon that you are never supposed to visit because Odin never points it out to you. That if you go there, like, it unlocks something. And you, you just keep doing these things... And eventually you get the real ending, which is a lot better and a lot more unique. It, it Like, the story stands out a lot more once you go off the beaten path. But I'm not sure how you're ever supposed to find this out, because I don't think NPCs really tell you, and Odin certainly doesn't tell yeah. you. And, like, yes, you can explore, but you need to do a certain number of these requirements before you can unlock the hidden ending. <laughs> it's right. a really weird game. I dig that. I really dig that. Yeah. But so anyway, the failure in this game is you know, you're doing what the game actually wants you to do. But what the game actually wants you to do is to openly defy what it tells you to do. 
it's 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 a really weird game but like it's also one of the coolest games i've ever played i really dig that i'm just still stuck on like odin receiving a man in the mail and just like <laughs> eyeing him up and down and figuring out how ideal this einherjar will be so strong <laughs> so strong so strong that's that's what my customers are preparing me for <laughs> Welcome to Valhalla. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, another great thing about Valkyrie Profile is that the voice actors are all the same people who worked on such four kids shows as Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh. Oh, no. The Lenneth is voiced by Nurse Joy. Uh, I want to say Freya is voiced by Ash Ketchum. Strong. <laughs> there are numerous characters voiced by Meowth. I love this. Highly recommended. Uh, there's no real decent way to play it legally, unfortunately. Like, there's a PSP version, but, like, there's also an iOS version, but, like, don't play that game with touch controls. <laughs> but, like, check it out if you're curious. I will. This sounds rad. <laughs> okay, but anyway, let's, uh, uh we, we got one more to wrap this yeah, up. Yeah, the last thing we want to talk about is something that I'm very excited about. Dylan brought it up, and I was like, yo... Um, I guess in case anyone out there has been living under a rock since about 1994, Pokemon is a series of video games and also a card game and also a TV series and series of films based around this world in which there are little fluffy animals with magic powers running around. And you, yeah. in the games, you take on the role of a Pokemon trainer, you go out, you catch these majestic beasts... You become their friends, and you pit them in battles against other trainers' Pokemon, and... But they love you know, it. It's like sports events. Yeah, it's they, they it's it's like friendly dogfighting. Um, <laughs> and they fight, and you attempt to become the very best like no one ever was, essentially. The typical, the typical sort of play structure for the Pokemon games is you go out and you try to catch as many Pokemon as you can. One of the sort of... Not really victory conditions, but one of the goals in the game is to collect one of every Pokemon. Yeah. Um, so that you have a complete collection. Uh, and also because Pokemon are divided into types, some of which are stronger or weaker versus other types. So you want to have like a well-balanced roster for taking out the challenges in the game. Mm -hmm. But some beautiful person came up with something referred to in the Pokemon community as a Nuzlocke run. Yep. And what a Nuzlocke run is, is someone was like, hey, Pokemon's fun, but I don't feel like I care enough about the individual Pokemon. Let's change that. So, and so they came oh. up with a bunch of rules for how the game has to be played, and it's fucking cool. So the rules of a Nuzlocke Pokemon yes. challenge are... I these This isn't all of them, but like these are the essential the ones. Uh, you have to catch the first Pokemon you see. You have to give that Pokemon a name. Once you catch a Pokemon, you can't catch any other Pokemon in that area. That's also important. Yeah, the, and, the game world is broken up into, like, distinct areas. Yeah. And once that Pokemon die, uh, like, once that Pokemon is knocked out in battle, they are considered dead, and you can never use them again. Yep. So that drastically increases the stakes. So it, it limits the uh, Pokemon you can have. You... Because of that, you become far more invested in those specific Pokemon. You come to care about them far more. And you're not catching them based on, like, oh, I like this Pokemon, or, oh, I think this Pokemon will be really strong. No, you, you get you that get Pokemon. You get what you get. <laughs> and you have to put the care and conditioning in to, like, make sure that this Pokemon makes it. It's um, and so, so cool. And so, you know, again, if that Pokemon is knocked out, that is failure on your part in... You know, in a normal Pokemon run, that failure is mitigated by, oh, I'll just go back to a Pokemon Center where they can treat these Pokemon and heal them. But that, that is not what the narrative of a Nuzlocke is about. The narrative of a Nuzlocke is, it is specifically you and your ragtag team of Pokemon beating the odds. Yep. And it's so, like, I love this because it speaks to that desire for, like, failure and hardship in your stories yeah not to say that this is the correct way to play a pokemon game by any means like, oh definitely the not. games are perfectly fine and they are very fun and like play however you want to play but i love that this is a group uh like this is a creation that has been adopted because people 
maybe it's just that they're challenge seekers and they wanted it to be harder, but it also has the side effect of like creating a more dramatic and a more narratively tense and narratively rewarding emergent narrative. And that's mm. really fucking cool. I've never <laughs> done a Nuzlocke run. I should do a Nuzlocke run. I haven't either. I haven't done the Nuzlocke, but I do name my Pokemon. They're all musical references, and that alone has made it more fun. But that that feels like a JoJo fan thing to do. It is a very JoJo <laughs> fan thing to do, but I actually didn't get it from JoJo's. Um, there was a Let's Play I watched where it was three friends doing a Nuzlocke challenge, and they decided to make all of their Pokemon hip-hop references. I love it. And so, like, I, I did it based on that. But they are also JoJo's fans, so who knows? Yeah, yeah. I think that can probably about I think do that's it a, for us. Oh, um, oh. actually, before we wrap yeah. up, the Hit only me. thing I wanted to add was that the Nuzlocke... I saved the Nuzlocke for last because, specifically, the Nuzlocke's are really cool in that, like, we, we keep talking about this emergent narrative and player narrative. And Nuzlocke's are cool because there are dozens of artists who have made comics based on their Nuzlocke runs. Yep. So that these these Pokemon that they have grown to love and care for have become characters that are then sent to other people to appreciate and enjoy. Yep. You create a story out of the hardships that you face because of this optional rule set that you put on yourself, and that's like... That is the coolest thing about yeah. video games. That if is why else, I love yeah, video games. Yeah, to tie to tie us back into our thesis very neatly, I think the existence of Nuzlocke runs and the fact that like they are such a widely regarded thing in the Pokemon fandom just sort of speaks to people want these story moments. Yeah. People want to have a connection with a game beyond just the cut and dry story that is presented textually. They want to feel like they are having an impact on some kind of narrative that emerges from play. It and... adds to the character of the world and also the character of your adventure. Yeah. Um, I also know people who, like, deliberately uh, play Pokemon. Every time they play a single entry, they will try a different team just to see, like, you know, just to keep the experience fresh and to to kind of roleplay a different trainer from the previous one. Yeah. That I, I just find that really cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping that as time goes on and more and more energy in the, the space of making games can be devoted to story over, like, you know, we, we've reached the point where graphics aren't going to get that much better. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that, like, the graphics race will peter out and, like, some energy there will be able to be funneled towards, you know, more of the creative side. Yeah. And I would love to see more games that find a way to engage with failure and engage with that you get knocked down you gotta get back up kind mm. of drive in stories and in the way that people are and you know who knows maybe we'll see that in the meantime i feel like i'm gonna start up a nuzlocke run uh hey. and to to expedite that let's go ahead and wrap us up thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of backstage gaming i had fun this week this was a fun I, episode yeah to, no to I, I quite enjoyed this we are on the internet as you doubtless have surmised so far, but specifically <laughs> our, inter go, Chris. our internet home is bsgpod.com. You can head there to uh, find our full archive of podcasts. You can download us straight from there. You can read up a little bit on Dylan and me. We've got some bios. We've got texts. We've got things about, you know, our sort of glossary of terms that we're developing uh, <laughs> I still sorry. want what? I'm just imagining someone handing out burned CDs of our podcast <laughs> on the. This street. is our this is our fire mixtape. Um, <laughs> coming to you in. I'm just gonna start dropping <laughs> flash drives with single episodes into oh bags my at my Whole Foods. Um, <laughs> I love it. Uh, but yeah, check us out at our website bsgpod.com and just see what we're up to there. Uh, you can also find our podcast, of course, on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We are on uh, Google Play in their store. Uh, so just, you know, check us out. Share the word. Help us grow. We love you. Um, if you do like us, you can hit us up on social media. We don't bite. We promise. Um, we got Facebook. Uh, we're on Twitter. Our handle is at BSG underscore cast. We have a YouTube. And, you know, 
if you wanna if you wanna post about us, please be sure to use the hashtag #BSGPod. Help my podcast grow. How many times have we made that Rita Repulsa joke? I don't think we have yet. Somehow, I feel like we have. We definitely well, have. Well, enjoy this repeat. This oh Rita God. Repulsa repeat. <laughs> anyway, uh, so also if you like the artwork that we use for our episodes as the thumbnail. Um, that is done by our friend Brendan French. Uh, you should check out his Squarespace. It's at brendanfrench.squarespace.com. That is B-R-E-N-N-E-N hyphen French dot squarespace.com. You should also go and check out our friend BioQuery. He is the musician behind our theme song, Dot Sound Radio Volume 1 Instrumentality. He's super cool. Uh, he's been posting a lot on Instagram recently about a new either album or EP that's in the process of being mastered to be released, and I'm very excited to hear it. I think uh, He's also been doing some okay. production stuff with some other music artists out in L.A., and he's just a super cool guy. You should go check him out either on Spotify or at his SoundCloud, which is soundcloud.com slash bioquery. That is soundcloud.com slash B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y. You were going to say something in the middle of that plug, Dylan. Um, I was going to say, he, he did release an album recently, like, well, oh, last uh, month or, Pop like, Sound, last year. Pop Songs for Late Capitalism is actually a, a more is a, a slightly older. It's, like, a year or two old now. There's, like, oh, a, new, okay. there's a new thing that's in the process of being mastered that I'm super hyped for. Okay, um, awesome, awesome. Uh, you should also be on the listen for Dylan on the upcoming arc of Unexplored Places, an actual play yep, podcast yep. produced by our friend Christine. Uh, they actually just wrapped the last episode last night, so yeah, the last episode fun. of that arc, I should say, and I'm super excited to hear it, and be on the listen for me having truly terrible things happen to me in audio form on the season finale of the upcoming podcast Unwell, a Spoilers. Gotha- gothic. I mean, <laughs> no, I show I know, up. I, know. I show you're, up in the last episode to be. You're an NPC. Badded. Yeah, you're I'm an, an NPC. NPC. In like, uh, of course, stakes are going to be raised. Yeah, but. It's set to be a really cool podcast. I don't know what it's I'm, about. I know very little about what it's about. What, what I know has me very excited, and you should all check that out. It's uh, got a, a brief like pre-Ep1 thing up on Apple Podcast already. I think that about does it for us. Also, you know, it's been a while since we plugged this. Go check out Magical History of Knox County, the first podcast that Dylan and I worked on together. Oh, God, please uh, do. It's it's quite yeah, good. It's at MagicalHistoryPodcast.com. It's also on iTunes. It's Unlike really this podcast, it has a script. Yeah. And I talk good. Yeah. <laughs> we forced Dylan into a small room and didn't let him out until he did vocal warm-ups. Uh, <laughs> That's uh, not true. I did not do vocal warm-ups <laughs> for Magical History. Uh, but anyway, go check that out if you like our voices, Dylan's in particular. And yeah, I think that we will let ourselves off the hook with that. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Backstage Gaming. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye. We love you.